Hi, I'm Jonathan Mann. And I'm Matt Condon. And this is Digitally Rare, a show about digitally owned things now and in the future. So, on today's show, we have uh, an interview uh, with Simon de Rouvier. Am I saying that right? I never know if I'm saying his name right or not. I'm pretty I, sure, but we'll have him introduce himself as well, so we get the authoritative. <laughs> get the real name. We sat right. down with Simon recently and talked about all kinds of things, including his recent foray into being a novel writer. Have you read his book yet, by the way, Matt? It's sitting on my desktop right now. God. Like reading it or or like waiting oh, to be read? It, it's, it's in the collection of PDFs <laughs> on my desktop that I need to read. <laughs> I know that everyone knows how that feels. Um, uh, yeah, so Simon is like is like a, I like to think of him as sort of a mad scientist of the of the NFT world, uh, oh, crypto absolutely. world. You know, it's worth noting that the recent kind of bonding curve craze that was set off by Euler Beats. Um, really can be traced back to a 2017 article that Simon wrote uh, on Medium, sort of mm-hmm. bringing the bonding curve idea into crypto. He, I, I really, you have to credit him as being the one to like popularize yeah. that idea in in the imagination of of the crypto world. Yeah, and you can see it in things like uh, Uniswap as well with automated automated market makers. It's uh, it's very much. Uh, become part of the the zeitgeist it's crazy that and and so uh, you know i would say watch simon and things that he's thinking about for you know to know like what's coming down the pike like what people are going to be interested in um he has you know multiple art projects of his own which we'll get into um anything else you want to add about about simon yeah, um, I think Renaissance mad, mad scientist is a good, <laughs> is an absolutely good uh, descriptor. That's that's Simon in a nutshell. So without uh, any more hesitation, here is our interview with Simon de la Rouvier. De la Rouvier. So art and crypto. Um, I think my my angle is primarily, you know, I've I've always been a creator of of sorts. Like I've I've dabbled in high school. I used to enjoy drawing a lot, um, and um, I made music. I made websites. Tinker with blockchains. Uh, recently, I wrote a novel. Um, made art. So anything to me about creative expression, I've enjoyed a lot. And part of that also is, you know, trying to find ways in which we can do more of this in the world and usually that comes from the angle of like how do we empower creatives to create more um and um one of the first hurdles i experienced when i was in high school i made some games right um and i was like this is so great like i can make games from my from my bedroom and um using tools like game maker and back then um, being in South Africa, like I had no access or ability to sell any of my games. Um, first of all, like I had to understand what was going on because my parents weren't going to do any of the research. I had to sit there with a dial-up modem and wait for things to load and understand. Like all these websites that I see have nothing to do with South Africa. It's all like PayPal and and I remember what the names were. It's all like US-focused websites. None of this worked for me. And, you know, I left quite dejected as a teenager going, I don't know how this works. 
and I, I can't do this. I, I, and if, even if my parents could, like, how do I even ask them to start somewhere? Like to ask them, like, you should sign up to this weird PayPal thing in the early two thousands from South Africa. It's like, it's not going to work. And so that was like a deep frustration I had with this, 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 this feeling like I, I could create things, but I couldn't earn from it. Um, and, and that slowly over time, like I, cause I enjoyed creating things in different ways from music to art and writing and so forth. Um, when I found the blockchain for the first time, I was like, this, this opens up so many possibilities because I can, I myself can, can now create things that empower creatives, but this also opens up this entire new space such that I can't just help myself potentially, but also help others. And, and if the end result is more people creating things that people enjoy, like that's the holy grail. And that's still something I work towards to this day. So um, that's how the, the, the two stuff came together for me in terms of like art and crypto. Um, you know, I've, I, I've always been in a creative mode and um, we, for, for a long time, it was primarily music. Then it was like recently writing with blogging and writing a novel. Um, but art was still in the background. I was like, that was stuff I did in high school and then it sort of take, took a backseat and now I'm getting back into it more. I think I just enjoy it merely from the perspective of like having the ability to make certain statements that you can't necessarily readily do with like uh, fiction or music. Um, it's, it's, it's more direct. It's, it is more like a more direct channel to have people question certain concepts. So, yeah. That's, Can you give an example? Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, when you think about it, it's like if you if you write a story, like what I try to do, say, when I wrote my novel is, is like I want to make people feel something, right? So whether that's at the end when they finish reading it, they go like, ah, oh, I feel something now about the nature of, you know, love or I feel now something better about death or whatever. Like I want people to feel something, but with art, I want people to question something like, like you're putting a statement forth and going like, like, is this how I perceive reality to be? And can I now maybe ask new questions? And, and that's the art I, jo I enjoy the most when it, when it, when it helps me question my reality or at least helps me mediate that. And that's why like, I enjoy a lot of modern art, even though it can sometimes be like very esoteric and like strange and weird. It's just, I like being in that strange space where you're, like, you're guiding me through like a new mental exercise or just, just making me feel awkward or making me feel strange. Um, so that's, that's, that's what I, that, that's partly why like the art projects I've done so far in, in like the, the art and crypto space has been about just like, let's question how we can maybe do things differently um, rather than going like, okay, uh, I let me see if I can still draw like I did in high school and put it up as an NFT. No, it's like, it's always for a, another goal besides the art itself. Mm -hmm. can, can I ask you like when you, is there a relationship and what is the relationship between like when you sat down, when you were conceiving of your novel, did you, did you have that in mind of like, this is how I want people to feel when they finish this? Like, this is, this is what I'm aiming for. Not necessarily, obviously that that's going to be because everyone gets their own experience. Did, did you have that, that target in mind, like with your novel or something? And, and did you have a similar target in mind in terms of feelings when you were making something like Neoelastics say? 
Like, what's the relationship yeah. between what's the difference between sitting down to write, make a novel mm. and sitting down to make mm. uh, something like that? Mm. Yeah, for for my novel, I think it was a bit clearer in terms of like like a lot of the themes and topics in the novel are things that that I've I'm either thinking about or like were like existential like questions and answers and journeys I I had to go through in the past like maybe five six years or whatever so like um part of that was like yes i i i went through a journey and this is how i felt at the end of it now i want to see if i can put it into a story to make people feel the same thing um but but it was like a north star and in terms of like i was heading in that direction but if i didn't end up there then that would also be okay but i happened to end up close to where i wanted to get to so that's at least a good thing versus um versus something like neoelastics um the 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 primary goal there was 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 more to to like you know i've 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 had this blueprint for a similar idea for probably like at least two years and 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 i've written about like a similar blueprint before and like no one has done it and i was like i want to see this happen and i want to see how people interpret this and um and i want to provide uh, um yeah, put this forward as a model for, you know, how to sell generative artwork in Ethereum going forward. And that was the primary goal, just 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 to go through this process and like make something which I feel like people should pay attention to. And I'll be the guinea pig. I think in, in the same way, this artwork is, on, is always on sales was a similar approach. Um, the the mechanic came first before the art. And like I wanted to people to to go like, could this be a way to to monetize creative content, or especially art in this case? Um, and then I thought, like, what kind of art can I do for this specific project? Mm -hmm. It's more yeah. about the the medium of yes. monetization than the specific artwork, and um, yes, or not more about, but that was the original source. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I guess that stemmed from bonding curves. Yes, um, for Neoelastics, the bonding curves, and then for this artwork, it's always on sale. Was the the Harberger tax uh, model? Yeah. So, can you explain um, the Harberger tax model? Yes. Um, so Harberger tax is how it's defined in sort of more academic literature. Is that it's like it's a property rights model that kind of sits between public ownership or like public access and mm -hmm. complete private ownership that we're more familiar with in terms of like people own a house or people own a car. And so how it works is it kind of sits in the middle where one, when you own an asset, uh, you always have to specify a sale price. Um, and you can't specify like this, my house is worth like $5 billion because you always have to pay some kind of tax or uh, I, I didn't try to use the word tax in my project. I used the word uh, rate instead. Mm -hmm. um, um, <laughs> you have to pay some kind of tax on that number that you specify um, towards some beneficiary. Um, and so at any point in time, someone can buy the asset from you, but then they then they have to um, follow the same rules, which is once they buy it, they also have to specify a sale price. Um, mm -hmm. And actually this, this model is also features prep like prominently in my novel as well that's really cool how does it show up in the novel so in the novel this is this is <laughs> this is the cool <laughs> part so actually the novel was inspired by the, the key like 
seed that planted itself was I saw a piece of pop art from um, the pop artist, um, I think it's Harrington Push Pushwachner, and he created this like very dystopian looking city of the future. And there's this one scene where there's just this traffic gridlock and there, mm. it looked like the people were moving between the cars. And I was just fascinated by that image because it, it, it felt like you, it was presenting to me a future where like, what if there is like a city in the future that had like a constant gridlock and people started building homes into the cars in the city? Um, and then why, why did it happen? You know, so I started mm. inventing stories as to why, why is the city like this and what, how would it work in practice? So because the cars are in public space, I decided that it made the most sense economically that the city decided for whatever reason it happened. Um, it's actually in the, there, there are reasons why that happened in the novel, but mm -hmm. uh, I don't have to get into de too detail there, but it follows a Harburger tax model. So anyone can own a car in this new commons, that is the traffic, um, and they can <laughs> build homes in there if they want to, but it follows a different property rights model than say apartments or homes. You have to always specify sale price and someone can buy your car from you at any point in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really exciting. I love the, like, um, what do they call that? Uh, like war gaming or something where it's like, imagine the scenario and then play it out <laughs> in real life. Yeah. 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 Right. And like, that's how you, that's how you build a fictional world, right? That's, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's how you do it. You, you, you just have to think through all the various consequences and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. You it was, build it was... the ship and then sink it. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely very fun to extrapolate on like what is, what that city would look like. Right. And, 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 and how people would, negotiate with this new reality and and like as we all know usually in in um in the real life sometimes temporary rules become permanent rules and so in in the novel people would would start like building temporary structures over their cars like hey i own this car so why can't i build like a second roof so i, I can put my brother to live above me over my car right mm -hmm. and then slowly it turned into permanent structures and then suddenly there's this new concept of like a new city being built over the cars and yeah <laughs> it goes quite i enjoyed like exploring that just like mm -hmm. building a city in my head <laughs> yeah i can't wait to read this um do you see harburger taxes being useful for like artists beyond so something like uh, land rights um, well, so in my case, like I did it, the, the first experiment I did for this was for artworks, um, for this artworks always on sale. I, I think my, the angle I took with this, with that project was like to, to, to specify it as a new way for patronage, um, mm -hmm. besides like I, you restrict access to your content and I pay for it or a donation model or tipping model or a subscription revenue model um, or some kind of licensing model. Like to me, this mm -hmm. feels like an, a new way which combines the ability for people to own something, although it's not like pure private ownership. Um, mm -hmm. It's like somewhere in the middle, but like through the process of owning this thing, like you're also supporting some beneficiary in the background. Like in, mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. art, this art is always on sale case. There's only one beneficiary and that's me as the artist, but this this could be as broad as you want it to be. It could be an artist collective, or it can mm -hmm. be like 
the Creative Commons, or um, it could be anything in the background. So there was a team that that forked the idea and created um, uh, the team's called Wild Cards, and they do this for conservation. So like you mm. own this hippo or this rhino, and the money goes towards some conservation project. Oh, that's so uh, rad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, so it's like uh, that's that's like a really cool way to funnel money through a new way of patronage that allows people mm-hmm. some feeling of ownership that that is beyond like what exists today in, in order to pay people. But that being said, um, there's always a line I keep in mind with this kind of property rights model, um, because a lot of people have proposed like different ways to use it in different places, but I don't think it's it's like this will this will be the only property rights model in the future. It, mm. I think I think you should ask yourself the question like this there's this phrase that goes, this is useful for something that ought to be owned in the commons, right? So it's mm-hmm. so it's like something that benefits from the fact that someone can't exclude access to it, right? Mm. So so it, this is why it's like usually in, in like in like land rights literature, it's like someone, there's like a, an empty lot that someone is squatting on in the middle of the city, but this could be built for like low income housing or like, uh, there's a factory that's unused by some global conglomerate that's forgotten about this property. Like this should be more properly utilized for the community. It's the piece of land is actually in. So I think like, even though this artwork is on, on sale only has one beneficiary, I think there are more interesting models that I still want to see in the future where this model could be used for like building commons kind of artworks or commons based infrastructure. So either mm-hmm. you, the, the money doesn't go towards just me as an artist, but maybe an artist collective or the artwork itself is like something that you work together with other people on. Like mm-hmm. if, if let's say while you are the owner, you have some special um, privileges and rights to edit the artwork, then it mm-hmm. becomes this constant process of like iteration and, and growth around the art piece um, mm-hmm. that eventually becomes this thing that everyone owns through Mm -hmm. the fact you're cycling ownership through individual contributors over time that's amazing i love um i have so many thoughts on that i love the um that it does feel like patronage and you use Mm -hmm. that word exactly but it also has this um tinge of ownership that i think is missing perhaps from traditional patronage Mm. um where you know you, you there's maybe there's something else attached to that ownership of course you kind of have to decide just what that means in this context Yes. But that's just really interesting. Um, And then the other thing I was thinking of was when you were talking about being able to have this participatory effect, I just read an essay in the Arena Annual about um, one of the most famous uh, Chinese calligraphy works where the piece has been owned by different dynasties and every, every leader will like put their stamp on it and then it was lost and they have copies and each copy takes on a life of its own with various stamps and and proofs Ooh. of ownership and copies of that and so on. That is so cool. I just feel like there's <laughs> yeah. so many experiments of this kind that we can still do that it's like, that's why like, I was like, guys, there's this basic building block, like with Neoelastics, like put generative art on a bonding curve. Like, come on, let's do this so we can do more <laughs> stuff. <you know>? Right. <laughs> that's like, what's what amazing it, about it is, is you can think about these things, but then once you, once you build it, that's when the medium is pushed. That's when... Yeah. It like becomes yeah. real. Yeah. yeah. Cause it's also like you specify the thing with the Chinese dynasties. It's like, it's like, what if every time you transferred an NFT, like 
the, it actually creates a copy of itself and, mm. and it's like randomly modified, right? Like through generative mm -hmm. art. Like process. a digital patina, yeah. Or yeah, there's just like so many, so many, I was literally thinking this morning, like, like one thing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys might be familiar if there's a project like this, but like one, one example I've wanted to do still is, and it's actually fairly easy to implement. I'm just, uh, is, is, um, and an NFT that has, uh, that self-destructs itself in like two years. Mm -hmm. Right. So, mm -hmm. so it, within it, there is this code, which, which after two years you can activate it and it destroys the contract. And that's mm -hmm. it. Like, like what happens if you have, if you built in the rules that it will destroy itself in two years, like what, what mm -hmm. happens, mm -hmm. how people approach this art piece. Right. You know, there was the, um, there was a piece that I loved. I don't know, remember what happened to it. I don't think I was around for the launch of it. I was. I, I remember hearing about it. The the um, the fortune cookie one, Matt. Do you remember that one? It was a. Oh, it, the yeah. idea. The idea was that there were like a hundred fortune cookies, and inside the fortune cookies were poems. But in order, you could buy a fortune cookie. But in order to read the poem you had to burn the fortune cookie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That That's exactly the kind of thing I think what pe people need to explore. Also, like, like one thing that I think is unexplored also is like, because of the fact that you have a, a like concrete history of, of the artworks or NFTs, like mm -hmm. um, even when it's destroyed, you will have the history of ownership that's still there. Right, right, right. Um, is that right. you playing playing with the concept of like receipts and and arch archival the right. archival nature of blockchains as part of the mm -hmm. art experience itself right that I don't also think is is explored deeply enough but yeah so yeah, yeah I mean I so much. in like one of my first videos about NFTs I was like positing that like you know if you lost if like the image of a particular rare Pepe was lost forever. But you still own you still owned it, quote unquote. Like then it's like suddenly even more rare, right? Because it's just yeah. it's just just literally gone. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you can't yeah. But you still have like you said, you have the receipt. Yeah. That you own. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I feel like I'd want to be able to have like uh I like that idea of once you transfer a thing, you you get like a copy mm -hmm. that's like a, a ghost, um, where it's like I you it's a it's a concrete representation of the fact that i used to own this thing mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. that was something we were playing around with uh, the stickers idea way back when was when you sent a sticker to someone else you you didn't want to lose the thing entirely so we would give you this like yeah this ghost copy i, I um, like that because like you can yeah in that sense like if you look at your wallet say like an nft wallet you can see like oh there are all these ghost images of, of like nfts you've transferred in the past mm -hmm, but you can do mm -hmm. that now even you can you can you, yeah. if you have an nft wallet like you can just show in, it to people yeah. like this is what you used to own mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. yeah because like one thing with with neoelastics you know because it's like generative art on a bonding curve i think like like there's been like a thousand two hundred of them that's been created but 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 like there's only like 300 and something that's now in circulation. So almost a thousand of them have been destroyed or burned, right? So mm -hmm. I was like, I, I if, when I find time, I'm a bit busy at the moment, but I, I was contemplating the aspect of like creating a graveyard where you show all the pieces <laughs> that were destroyed that uh -huh. don't exist anymore yeah. as like a memorial. <laughs> totally. I've been, 
I just was it was just uh, told to me that there's a number of punks that have been burned. Um, and so I'm working on a song on a song that's literally like a, a, a an elegy for for the for the lost for our fallen our fallen brothers the i can't i'm unclear whether there's two or three punks that are completely gone forever um i can't quite get to the bottom of it no one knows but uh actually our our friend eric he he accidentally burned a zombie is 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 the story he acts he it was like a total accident he sent it to the wrong address he sent it to like zero x zero 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 somehow just like totally by accident and it's just gone. Um, it's a great story, though, right? And so it belongs. Yeah. it belongs in. A I song. love this idea of of a collective graveyard for NFTs, yes. right? Like just everything that's been sent to the zero zero address. Yes, um, yes. And just just yes. make them grayed out, have a that's, little rip. Yeah, that's that's so beautiful. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's a yeah. good art project. It I plays like that. a funereal like uh, thing, to, you know, mm-hmm. like over. While you, yeah, yeah, I want to be able to get like a bunch of people together and grieve, <laughs> right? Right. Like Steve Jobs had a funeral for for OS OS nine, I think I remember or right, something like right. that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Love that's it. really. That's good. also like that's also like one thing like to to continue that kind of feeling the feeling of like ritual around some of the stuff. Like yeah. one thing one thing I also feel like is unexplored is. Um, using nfts for real world experiences and i think matt like your mm. recent like yes. like sticker sticker thing is like brilliant mm. it's like it's like that is exactly the kind of thing i think That's also it. which would be super interesting is that if you can show ownership in a physical experience like you get access to something whether it's like like oh like uh you get access to a high five or like whatever right the fact that that mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you own it and you manage to get to me in physical space, like then you mm-hmm. get access to something or like either mm-hmm. I, it could be anything. And that uh, I take cues from there's this artist. Um, I think it's J.S. Bugs. Uh, was it Bugs or Klein? One of the one. I think it's Klein. Yes. Uh, yes. Zone the sensibility pictural immaterial uh, from Yves Klein. Right. So what what he did was he created this check. Right. And this was in in like the 50s. And what it was, was like, it gave you the ability that if you have this this check or like receipt, you could come to East Klein and say, we need to perform the ritual. And then what happens Mm -hmm. is it goes, it's this thing where like they they burn, they burn or destroy something, but but you get access to this immaterial experience of like burning something with East Klein. And I was like, that's really cool. Like, like there should be a way to go like, Yes, you have this NFT and it's cool in the blockchain, but it gives you access to this ritual, <laughs> whatever that ritual is. <laughs> right, right. But what I love about Matt's thing and is similar with that is like, but but it but it's uh, it's extremely scarce because it relies on being yes. in direct proximity with yeah. the person, which is like. That's yeah. what's really interesting to me is non-monetary distribution mechanisms mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. this ar- artificial scarcity. Because like money is the most natural, obvious, and efficient way to distribute things, but I feel like in certain cases it might just be more fun to like in my case you have to find me, or you have to go to a concert, or you have to just be in New York at a certain time, or something like that. It's interesting. There's one of those tokens, right? And and I wonder if you can search it on EtherScan. Um, 
there was on DevCon 2, mm-hmm. I think it was Piper Merriam who um, created a DevCon 2 token. And mm-hmm. anyone who was there could, he was like, we, because during DevCon 2, there was a lot of stuff that happened with Ethereum. It was just after the DAO hack. There was the, oh, the, yeah. tax, the tax on the network. There was a lot of issues around like what decisions should the Ethereum community make around governance. Like there was a lot of contention and con- controversy over like what's the right decisions to, to make. That like Piper wanted to make to mint this token and give it to people and say, um, if you um, if we want to make decisions in the future, it would be useful to get a a a sort of combined perspective from the people who were at defcon 2 so it's like mm-hmm. it's like really cool like it's like this old token that's still around that people can go check and like right. who were at defcon who were at defcon 2 <laughs> i like that a lot like another example that i thought of is if you donate to the ethereum foundation you get the unicorn uh mm-hmm. token yeah yeah um and that i don't know that anyone is using that for anything but it's kind of interesting yeah. it's like yeah. a very natural distribution mechanism and then the question is what does that unlock it's interesting i feel like there's a lot of stuff in like early ethereum history that that is is there is on the blockchain that's kind of hidden away that people Mm -hmm. don't know Mm -hmm. and and i've been thinking of like it's it's either a good idea or a bad idea but like to to go and go like a history of ethereum like strange things in the blockchain kind of series mm. um but the only reason why we'd be against that is like is like you're kind of doxing some people uh sure. that that you might not want to dox so um mm-hmm. but there's stuff like the first smart contract on ethereum uh one of the first maybe it's the first or the second smart contract on ethereum at least the first interactive smart contract in Ethereum was a piece of smart contract that allowed people to put graffiti onto Ethereum. So you huh. could just you could just put some text into it. But now if you go back into that smart contract, uh, you can go see like early Ethereum people like writing stuff like Simon was here. <laughs> right. Wow. Right. Um, but That's it's, so but interesting. I had no idea. That's amazing. But but like all these people like it's like it's like you don't want to dox these addresses <laughs> so it's right like, let's let's yeah. that's all i will say like you can go try and right, find right. it but i won't say where it is <laughs> that's super interesting though because there's so much there's so much stuff that even though it is immutable on chain it's not immutable in our minds and we can forget about it yeah. Yeah. And if we forget that context, like, um, you know, if it's, we forget a token and what it represents and then, you know, it means nothing, but it could have been. But know, then when it's rediscovered, it means something completely different. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. if it, we remember what it is, right? Like, see, that's that's a feeling like it feels like archaeology. You know, you're it like, does. Right. It's it like does. what happened here in the blockchain in 2015 and 2016? <laughs> it's like these strange transactions that signify something there's one there's one example which i thought was really cool for the series which was um one of the first um virtual worlds on ethereum was etheria hmm. etheria um what what was the guy's name cyrus i think cyrus was his name Atkinson. so he, hmm. he built this like virtual world where you pay gas to mint like blocks right <laughs> but the funny thing was the initial smart contract was written in such a way that that um in order to it like it had like this gas bug where like it became increasingly more expensive to mint more blocks and then oh, there was fun. this 
<laughs> there was this eventually it like blocked itself by <laughs> creating a like a headless horse so there's this big there's like on ethereum there's a virtual world with a headless horse <laughs> that, like no one knows about that's incredible that's yeah that's really neat these stories i i don't know i do actually feel like these stories need to be told yeah that's yeah. the thing is like these are beautiful narratives that can be told and and it feels like there's not a fantastic way to do that but yeah i guess um really like rewinding back so it feels like there's this very natural connection between generative art and crypto um i know jason bailey feels similarly and having seen your like recent denver talk um i know you're you're into generative art can you like cover like why you think it's interesting and like is this a paradigm shift like what what makes this amazing yeah i think i think one of the the important pieces of why i feel like generative art works well with crypto and blockchains is that both of them uh if set up correctly uh become automated systems right so so like you can create a generative art generator or like a piece of software that once it's there like the human can leave right like mm -hmm. you don't need more human input anymore to create new editions of the generative artwork um same with the smart contract like once you upload it um you know for the foreseeable future that smart contract will always be there right so the 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 creator can step away then it's only algorithms interacting with algorithms um and code interacting with code and those two things together has to me as like a lot of potential in terms of creating new kind of creative experiences because now you have generative art which can run automatically in your smart contracts which can run automatically which can run economies automatically now what if what happens if you combine the two together right then you have this like explosion of possibilities between like you know an artist that owns itself that creates art that pays people to improve itself and the strange mm -hmm. manner of incentives which could lead to just very interesting explorations of art um i remember some of the the, the first times like i I've, I've 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 explored these ideas with uh were with um Trent McGonaghy from Ocean Protocol. And mm -hmm. like, we were sitting down and we we're like, art DAOs, like art DAOs, like what would an art DAO look like? Because it's also during the time of the DAO whenever and when all these ideas came to fruition. It's like, what if you had this ability for like DAOs to create art, but it was also an AI behind the DAO creating art, like, mm -hmm. what would it look like? And, and we joked about this idea, like, you could have a future where you have an artist worth several million dollars that is owned by no one or owned by everyone, right? <laughs> That's creating art and the money it makes, it pays towards software developers to improve its algorithm to produce new art, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like positive feedback loop to create new art. So. That's that was like my entry point into like generative art and like exploring that in Ethereum was like it it it's like it provided this avenue to just it felt like you're creating life in a weird way like you're creating an artist that lives mm -hmm. by itself um, and and so that's why I still believe like generative art is like a very interesting way to explore like new kinds of art creation that just weren't possible before like I know generative art was a thing with like the rise of cheaper software and and the internet and the ability of people to share things um 
but like now it just feels like starting to be super powered and that's why like with neoelastics it it was like the first step for me to say like look we can start building like like automated economies around generative generative art because all the other generative generative art experiences on ethereum art projects um there were decisions made by the creators around mm-hmm. certain aspects of it that 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 limited or that uh, yeah i feel limited the economy that could be created like like mm-hmm. there's a choice that people that say larva labs made like why were there only 10,000 crypto punks why not 20,000 why not a thousand mm-hmm. or autoclass why are there only 512 of them why not 1024 or whatever right so it's like it's like these are the questions you can ask and now use eco- like economics to imbue art or generative art with new kinds of things and the holy grail for me still is like i was thinking a lot of these ideas uh, with trent as well and, and actually also um greg mcmullen who used to work at at, at ocean and, and big chain as well big chain dv mm-hmm. um is we were thinking about these ideas and then separately there was also another person a gene kogan he was yeah. the create creator mm-hmm. of machine learning for artists like he wrote this absolutely massive bible on like all these components that you could fit together to create like a true autonomous artificial artist um mm-hmm. and the, what he brought to the table was um he has experience in machine learning so I don't I don't have that deep knowledge of machine learning that's one thing I lack a lot of like that I need to do a lot more research into but like he knows like uh, multi-party compute like homomorphic encryption like general machine learning um, all these kind of things that could work together and so there's these four components it's like um, generative art uh, crypto economics DAOs and then also encryption models which you can combine together and he calls the project abraham ai and mm-hmm. abraham is like the biblical abraham um in in order to imbue this feeling of like it's like it's like you're you're busy starting a religion or like you're busy mm-hmm. starting mm-hmm. something spiritual by creating this artist that lives by itself and how the multi-party compute works is that um one thing that generative art currently does is that when it's a deterministic algorithm your input will always generate the same output, right? So you kind of, you can kind of guess what future artworks will look like. But mm. when you use multi-party compute, like you have to combine pieces of computation from different parts of a network that such a one participant can't know what the computation will be that the other people will do. It's it's only when it's combined that you see the full picture. And that to, to, to Gene, like uh, in, implies like a feeling of um, what he calls it, um, that the artist has almost like a theory of mind that he can mm-hmm. create things mm-hmm. that we don't know what it will look like yet. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's like a big, big ramble on that topic. But it's like, I feel like all these things combined, we can it just, I just, the future vision of like just having this like DAO that lives by itself, that creates art and we're working with it to create more art. That's like the most future and exciting thing I can imagine. That's super interesting. Yeah, it's it's so so exciting, and the theory of mind bit is is really on point because that is like a thing that we think about when we think of like smart contracts, for example, or like all of these uh, systems and DAOs that are self sustaining. It's like greater than the sum of its parts. It, it can have this sort of entityness, this consciousness. But I love 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 the idea that 
um, not only is the art DAO Abraham like more than the sum of its parts in terms of uh, the community and creativity, but also that the 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 parts cannot know the whole until yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, we actually interviewed uh, Gene like a year and a half ago when he was just July seventeenth, uh, twenty nineteen. I was just looking at the yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah. Art, art thou and art thou Abraham. Still you, one of my best titles. You, you're such a good titler, man. You gotta <laughs> just title all the things. I was just yeah. looking at it. I'm sort of disappointed. I think it's. I think it looks like it's probably on a, on a hiatus at this point. What's that? Uh, oh, Abraham. Abraham. No, yeah. they're actively working on it. Are um, they? Yeah. There's this. Uh, I need to learn more. But there's this um, place to, called to... Mars College. Oh, okay. Mm. Um, and he is over there right now. It's this like um, like anarcho. Uh, community in the desert somewhere what the fuck oh this is awesome yeah okay yeah yeah <laughs> and they have an instagram and they post um there's like what what seems to be like 20 something people you know all living out of camper vans around this like very high tech for the middle of the desert um infrastructure <laughs> yeah, yeah and people are giving talks on bitcoin and gene is talking about abraham lordy um, lord lord this is so crazy. i think it's i think it's happening just uh yeah. not uh, visibly well, it's not happening at Abraham.ai. It's it looks like right, it's right, happening. Right. It's happening in the middle of the desert. Well, that, that's the thing. Like that's the thing with um, you know some of the blueprints for this stuff I've written about since 2017, and that's why mm-hmm. like the elastics, I was like, come on, let's let's get this someone's got to like, do like, it. Yeah, like, Gene wrote right. the entire blueprint. Like it's yeah. there. Like we it's can there. do this. Yeah. Like yeah. it's yeah. just we need power to you know put fingers to keyboards and get it done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, same thing with the stickers. It's like I've wanted to do that since 2018. That's when I got the chip with the intention of doing this exact project. I remember you um, showing to me in, in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and only just now got around to it. So, yeah, it, it takes it takes like literal pushing to push the yeah. medium like that. Yeah, but it just goes to show yeah. like I think, um, you know, some of the stuff I worked on in like 2016, 2017, 2018, mm-hmm. Like all the stuff with Ujo Music, where I was working a lot in mm-hmm. the music industry, you know, we we launched uh, a, when we did a, an Ujo Music collaboration with RAC, we launched the Ego mm-hmm. badge with when he launched the Ego right. album, and this was in 2017, and and we wrote this article on like social capital and this is badge you can own, and it was right. just like before, I think it was literally right after CryptoPunks launched, so it's like mm-hmm, it's like. Mm-hmm. Now so it would early. be an NFT, but then it yeah. was like an ERC20 token. And it's just mm-hmm. like a lot of the ideas that have transpired in the past five, six, seven years in like the blockchain space, like all the conversations mm-hmm. people have around like after parties in, in, in badly ventilated techno <laughs> uh, places, um, all this, all this stuff is still it's 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 still very good ideas you know we just mm-hmm. it's just yeah. the time needs to come and same with like seeing like the boom in nfts like it's like people have mm-hmm. had these ideas for a long while like mm-hmm. it started with counterparty and like rare pepes mm-hmm. and, and like mm-hmm. and like only now it's like suddenly boom like now people care care about it and so i feel like this always is this it feels like there's this lead time of like two to three years from someone having this really cool idea to like mm-hmm. it actually working in in practice to to getting adoption um yeah and, and it's kind of unfortunate that timing is is most of everything uh, uh 
Yes. Yeah, I guess. I guess it, it is. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like part of that is just, you know, everyone builds on the shoulders of the people before them, like, mm-hmm. like audience, mm-hmm. like audience, for example, like, like they learned from what we did at Ujo. Right. Right. And so, right. and so, and so, and, you know, good for them. They're like, they're like, they're like doing their thing and like, and like making a success of their stuff. But like, we we had the conversations with music industry people in 2015 and mm-hmm. all the awkward conversations with record labels and stuff like that and and now they know what to do with it because they learned right. from the fact that we were sitting there explaining to them what ethereum is um and that's cool that's cool that's that's part of what needs to happen you know people need to have mm-hmm. these conversations and and like you said sometimes you won't be at the right time in the right place sometimes you won't but but like i feel like at least if you're if your your heart is in the right place, like why you're doing something, it doesn't matter, right? Um, mm-hmm. For me, it was always like, I, let's say in in the music industry, I had this vision of like, this is what it should look like in ten years, like like how we're going to get there. I have no idea, right? But mm-hmm. like, someone needs to start building. And same with like Neoelastics. Like, I think we're going to have like an Abraham AI in the future. This might happen mm-hmm. in the next five years. But someone needs to build like the first bonding curve, bonding curve generative art project, and and like, I'm gonna do this now. I'll take a bit of my holiday uh, and do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's part of the part of part of what needs to happen, and that's why yeah. the the entire space sometimes feels like it it like bolts in in like leaps and bounds suddenly, and it's because people right. have been working on these ideas for like two to three years, and then suddenly it blows up. Yeah, that's the joke, right? Uh, it takes ten years to be an overnight success. Yeah, very much. Yeah, can you talk about um, like music and and the sort of uh, music industry and crypto mm-hmm. and and especially yeah. around Ujo and your thoughts yeah. there? But um, like how that is <laughs> yeah. interesting. I think I think one of the things like after I left Ujo was like a bit of a a bit of a bitterness around like how the music industry works right um because like i'm a hobbyist musician so so like i came to ujo from the perspective of like i'm a creative and i've only uploaded music to soundcloud Mm -hmm. this like let's make something that the soundcloud artists can make revenue from but then there was this entire industry that was like royalty collection societies publishers record labels Mm -hmm. like like music managers and and like all this giant industry that like became incredibly entrenched over you know a few decades and and it was just like this this giant mess like legal mess like like um legal mess like technical mess and and some of the attitudes of the people we engaged with were just very like like vindictive almost like it's Hmm. it's um it felt like we were we would be in a record discussion with a record label and they would be like this is so great these ideas sound amazing <laughs> like we should do this and then at the end of the conversation they would just flip the coin and go oh and just by the way if any of if any anyone uploads music to this platform that is under our copyright we'll sue the shit out of you Jeez. and we're like and we're like sure that's within your domain like you're allowed to do that but like it's like now I don't even trust you because you you took you 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 flipped the table on us to like completely distrusting us. You don't have we don't have the best intentions here with each other, right? So what so what's the relationship actually? So it's like 
it was just difficult dealing with all that what I would regard as like a complex mess of things with legal legal issues, copyright, mechanical royalties, and publishing rights, songwriting, all these kind of things that were difficult to deal with. With like you have what you feel like could be an optimized system, but like you had to build these like round pegs and square holes for it to work with what exists in reality. And so when I left, I was like, two things need to either happen. Like either people are going to keep chipping away at this problem and will take several years to get it working really well, right? Or like there needs a big copyright reform, which I don't think is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Or three, like forget all of that, forget all of that. And that's why I feel like why I resonate with like what, what, like Zora's crypto media thesis was like that's one of the things I was close to proposing to to people at the time so like like why don't musicians just go and like make their music public domain like as an extreme here but earn revenue through other channels right that is that has nothing to do with like meat space copyright or leak space meat space like intellectual property laws and all these kind of things and it's and I look like just to clarify, like, I don't think these things are bad. Like, I agree that the art and a musician should be able to choose how they make money from their work. Like, they should be the ownership of it. Like, they should be able to choose. Like, I don't want people to pirate my music. I want to own my copyrights and my intellectual property. All these kind of things. I just don't think they, they work together really well in order to bridge the boundaries between, like, a blockchain-mediated intellectual property universe and like meet space intellectual property universe um and to merge those two was just such a difficult mm-hmm. space to be in that that it was like i left this illusion in some sense with like how you should solve the problem that's why like at the latter end i was pushing all the the badges and all these kind of things and tipping and stuff like that it's like upload your music and and give us the full rights to stream your music but the musician might not earn most of their money through this way like get fans your five five to ten percent of your fans to support you five to ten percent of your top fans to support you so yeah that's that's like that's what i felt where it was yeah. um when i, mean, I left it feels like and, that has to be the future right yeah like if 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 it's the especially drawing like parallels to the web and, and free content yeah. And how that's yeah. like kind of the downfall of democracy. Yeah. Um, it, it feels like it monetization has to come from some other means, like paying yeah. for intimacy or yeah, um, yeah, some sort of yeah. secondary concept. So, so I've, I actually have a question. So, so what we've seen so far, somewhat in the NFT space, with with musicians coming in and like, you know, I'm a, I'm an author. I wrote a novel. Like, so, so, so here's interesting stats around my novel. So. I mm-hmm. did two. I did two uh, NFT projects for my novel. One is called mm-hmm. Excerpts of Gridlock. Mm-hmm. So I just took like 15 passages from the novel and like just minted those 15 passages. Mm-hmm. And then one recent project I did was with an audiovisual artist, uh, Metza, and he created this beautiful uh, cinematic mm-hmm. aesthetic experience, like more traditional digital art, exper- a 3D digital art experience. And those two projects like sold for more than the revenue I've made from my novel. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but that being said, like I sold my novel as creative commons, uh, uh, pay what you want. Um, but that being said, I still earned more per novel per book sold than what 
the normal price would be. So people pay more and still mm -hmm. cover the people mm -hmm. who download the book for free, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. pay what you want worked better than me choosing a price. And the second thing is the NFTs I sold related to the novel made more money than mm -hmm. the novel. Than right? the pay what you want people, yeah. Yes, right. right. And And like a part of me is going like, my thesis is like that should be the future, right? Mm -hmm. But but in some sense, I'm like, this is the belief that this only really works now because it's a new industry. And one like, mm. I my my reputation in crypto precedes my novel, right. so people might be might be buying these things because it's it's Simon mm, and not because sure. it's the novel, right? Mm -hmm. And the same with like, yeah. say when Mike Shinoda sold the the piece mm -hmm. on Zora or like RSC selling pieces like like their reputation precedes their work, mm -hmm. right? And it's selling NFTs. So right. when Mike Shinoda tweets and he says, you know, I've earned more from the Zora piece than I could have ever earned from streaming this music on Spotify, like right. this is the future. And I go like, I believe that to some extent, but like it's also early. So early works, there, there might be mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. demand than there is supply at the moment. So. So like, what would the future look like? Would, can we say that this vision is mm -hmm. going to be reality in the future where mm -hmm. musicians and artists and all kinds of creatives will move towards like the Zora thesis of like, make everything public domain and sell collectibles and then earn mm -hmm. from that instead. Mm -hmm. I'm not hundred percent certain, although I want to believe that to be the case in the future. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And so that's like an open-ended question for me. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I can speak from like my perspective, mm -hmm. you know, um, because, you know, I'm essentially like a working musician. So like I, I get my, all of my income comes from music and it comes from like a bajillion different places. Right. And mm -hmm. none of it is, particularly much but like all of it added together is enough to like sustain my family so like i i when my baby yoda song this is true when my baby yoda song went viral like i'm still living off of that like that that my baby yoda song the revenue this i got from streaming streaming revenue the revenue i got yeah. from spotify the revenue i get from youtube the revenue i get from just all streaming services that is like one nice little chunk of revenue that I get that I didn't have before. That's amazing. Um, so, so I'm, I'm a little skeptical when I see big, big um, musicians who have really large followings, you know, my Spotify right now says that I get like 60,000 listeners a month. So if I see someone that has more than that saying like, I don't make any money from streaming, I'm like, really? Because, you know, <laughs> okay. like, and so, so that's one thing, you know, and then I have Patreon um, and I have YouTube ad revenue again, uh, you know, if you get 2 million, that, that baby Yoda song has like 7 million views on YouTube and that translates to about, it's about, it's about 10, it's about two grand per uh, million views mm -hmm. on, on ad revenue, roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I, to me, I, you know, to your point, like, I think it's like a, I think it's not an either or, I think it's like an everything. I, the way that I come, have come to see like NFTs is, is it's just another, it's just another channel like opportunity yeah. for people. It's not, it's, I don't think, I don't think it should replace everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I mean, I definitely mm-hmm. hear what you're saying about how locked down everything is with the copyrights and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that revenue now is like extremely valuable to me. Um, and the, the the money, the the little money that I'm making from NFTs now is, is also been really valuable. So it's just like um, I see it as like a I see it as like an everything kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Another tool in the toolbox. Exactly. I mean, just another the, tool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thesis of this this podcast episode is that it is just another tool in the toolbox. Right. Mm-hmm. The only thing, the only wrench that I feel like I could throw into that theory is the <laughs> like the wrench, the tool that you're throwing yeah. into the tool. Yeah. <laughs> the wrench in this toolbox is that there it feels like this there's this gigantic cultural shift. Um, specifically internet driven and also generational shift around expectations of how content is consumed that makes it harder and harder um, to justify saying I'm an artist I produce this content you pay to access it end of story Mm -hmm. it feels like everyone has to be a personality that has this fan-based interaction oh yeah um, it feels like you have to have this like high and high intimacy mm. relationship with your audience. I would agree um, with that. And so I, I feel like, you know, rip in peace to traditional artistry um, in, in both the, like in a very neutral way. Like, I feel like it's unfortunate that you can't, it feels like you can't just make a thing, sell it and call it a day anymore. Um, but it also is like kind of this huge opportunity it feels like a cultural shift. I don't know mm. in, in what people value and how I people. Like, I feel like the only, the only like creative stuff that's being developed now that doesn't follow that model is actually memes. <laughs> Cause no one knows yeah. who creates the meme. That's like, true. Like, yeah. Like, but, but that person knows they created it and went viral and that's their pat in the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's I mean, social capital. Yeah. Well, I mean the, the, I see people who have like whatever millions and mil like, tens of millions of quote-unquote views on Giphy, right? Like GIFs mm. they create, mm. you can see, yeah. and, and they're so frustrated by this. You know, <laughs> you like... Payouts on Giphy. Can you get payouts on Giphy? Because yeah, I see... my friend mentioned that there are people making a living, but also oh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a very small percentage. Yeah, because the people that I know who, who have it are like, yeah. you know, they're not famous or anything. They're just they're just friends of mine who, who yeah. have GIFs on there, and they're so frustrated. They're like... What do I get for right ten okay. million in, views on Giphy? In my friend's defense, they work at Giphy, so I think <laughs> <laughs> so I think they have a, a slight agenda. I'll say one other thing that, I, and I was saying this to Matt the other day. One other thing I've noticed about music on NFTs now that I've actually been minting my own is I think like mm-hmm. the visual. And to your point, like you collaborated with a visual artist, right? And like mm. the 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 visuals to your music on in an nft space at least right now especially mm-hmm. are as important or more important than the yeah. music itself yeah because it's such a visual medium yeah. yeah and i mean i think that's the take right is it's it's a visual medium and this goes back to like the context stuff right it's like the only thing that i can own on the blockchain that comes remotely close to to rep to, to replicating this concept of ownership in physical space is visual content because that's right. what computers are so good at displaying right I mean, it's it's the same thing as like that. That SoundCloud kind of solved when they 
when they made a thing that showed you the waveform, which was like a, I remember it sort of being a big deal because no mm -hmm, other mm -hmm. thing did that. But like you could release a song as a YouTube video or you could release it as a SoundCloud video or a SoundCloud mm -hmm. link. And just the YouTube video is always going to do better. Always, right. always, always, always going to do better. It's just an image, but 30 frames per second. <laughs> that's and it. that's going to do better. Always. Yeah, because it's, it's also in, in Spotify, like some songs have this looping images and right. stuff mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. you play when you play stuff. I think it's like it, the visual aspect, like I think it, 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 it adds to the experience, but I don't, don't necessarily feel like it's it's necessary um, right. with music. Or audio. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't yeah. be. But it is. But like, <laughs> I but mean, like, it is like, in terms of. Let's let's, let's let's imagine like like there's like digi digitally rare like NFTs per podcast. Like it's 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 what what visual things would you add to this? That's like an hour mm. long on, on YouTube, right? You know, right. it's like I mean, well, in yeah. the past, like you know, I think you know part of the appeal of like or like why say people like Joe Rogan became popular as a podcast was because they did like you could see the people talking right, as well the 3d yeah totally. right so may, so may, it's, yeah. it's just more engaging it turns it into something well one youtube as an accessibility layer but also the content as like a uh, like a what's the word for that it's something you focus on rather than something you don't mm -hmm. i don't know if that makes sense like i have a really hard time doing podcasts because you know you're supposed to listen to it while you're watching while you're washing dishes or something like that but um <laughs> I mean, ironically, we're on a podcast here, but like when I'm listening to a podcast, I'm either tuned in and not doing anything else or completely yeah. tuned out mm, because it's yeah. just in the background. It, it, and it, for me, for me, it depends like what kind of podcast I'm listening to. Like some, some podcasts, like I need to pay attention. <laughs> mm -hmm. Other times yeah. like it feels like a background discussion and then I can like clean my apartment and do some dishes and like maybe go mm -hmm. for a walk or do some shopping and listen mm -hmm. to what, what this background conversation is. Yeah, that's. Yeah. This is not going down a deep tangent, but yeah. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's uh, wrap it back to music. I'm, I'm, can you, you mentioned having this 10-year visual of, of what the industry looks like when you have these new tools. Yeah. Can you paint that picture in a, in a kind of concise think, way? So when I said earlier about this vision of like, let's forget about copyright intellectual property. Let's make everything public domain, public domain and people earn from the collectible experiences like that's one extreme right that's like one extreme vision of the future where it's just like we forget about any intellectual property like let's go let's go post post ip like let's forget everything about it right Radical. that's like one vision yeah <laughs> uh the other side is just like it's like okay intellectual property in 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 music uh specifically will it still exist um People will want to earn from their music in, in more traditional manners um, when it plays on the radio or um, on, on YouTube or whatever and earn royalties from the songwriting and so forth. But the, that future, uh, what it would look like in the digital era, that I still believe is not what it looks like today and it will still be different what it looks like five to ten years from now and that vision is just simply like like having a unilaterally agreed upon like copyright law or system where um, people can more readily um, uh, do legal licensing um, mediated through smart contracts 
So the the vision the vision I always like try to push with like when we started working on Uja as a platform is if I have a new idea with how music should be streamed or how music should be played, right? As a developer, right, I can't use this music, right, unless I go and negotiate with record labels right. or musicians, right? So if I have this great new idea, I can't do this over a weekend. I need to fly to London and LA and go and sit in boardrooms to ask people if I can use this music. But if there were just some smart contract mediated license where I in my bedroom can code up this thing, pay some few cents to start off this project, that would make the world of difference in order to improve and create new kinds of experiences and right. pay musicians um, automatically, no matter where you are in the world. Like I shouldn't be restricted by the fact that I'm sitting in South Africa right? Say I said someone sitting in Laos or Argentina or the US, like someone should be able to go, I want to create a new kind of radio that does things differently. But I, 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 but I shouldn't have to go sit in boardrooms for three to six months and negotiate with people in order to make this work. Right? That's, that's the vision I want to see in the future, like just programmatic licensing for music. Um, and I believe like smart contracts, and blockchain technology can do that. Like if if we find a way to to, to do that, but is anyone working again, on that? Um, I feel like I've seen the thing is like like something. So, but... so we as uh, with Ujo, we also work with the mm -hmm. the um, big chain DB team, which is now the Ocean team. Like we worked on like licensing schemes mm -hmm. that included like the metadata, the legal terms, right? That was like legally binding and all these kind of things. So it's like the technology exists in some sense. Like it's good enough that you can start. Um, but but I, but I believe the bigger problem is um, is that it feels like it's an all or nothing kind of thing. Like mm -hmm. same same with like people starting streaming services. Like if you want to start a new streaming service, like how many people are going to sign up if you don't have like the back catalog of all the current pop music that's on there, right? Right. It's like to start a niche streaming service is really difficult mm -hmm. um, because people are like, why am I going to pay $10 a month if I can't listen to Taylor Swift? Like what's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Um, um, and so, and so, the the i believe it's possible and there might be people now working on this more directly mm -hmm. um in, just in terms of that like licensing aspect um there were a few companies back in the day that tried to work in that space it was um you know media chain which is now jesse walden um and dennis from weimer um they were working on like stuff like that they were like met um jack slash meta or like a mm -hmm. London-based team, like Ujo. The bunch of teams trying to work on it, but I think we all bumped into the same issue of going mm -hmm. like, this is a massive mountain of problems that I believe like it would either happen if, say, Spotify chose to do this, or yeah, pretty much Spotify. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like if Spotify decided to go like, but the thing is, they might have interest in doing something like that because like they've struggled in the past with like publishing problems where like they've been sued by the fact that they're paying the wrong people or they haven't paid people. And that's just like a data problem. The data sucks. Like right. the backend, the database is like some intern with an Excel spreadsheet making right. mistakes. Right. Um, and, and so it's like, 
I believe that vision is still true, but like who will do that? I don't know. And there was also, the, here's a good example of why this is difficult. I think it was somewhere in the early 2000s, there was this project called the G, uh, uh, GRD, the Global Repertoire Database. There were a bunch of um, world collection societies and labels and like a bunch of music industry institutions that came together and said, this problem sucks. Like, like why do mm -hmm. we have so many databases of music rights information mm -hmm. situated in different countries? Let's yes. make one big database, right? Yeah. And what happened was they made, put a bunch of money together. They, I think that I don't remember who they tasked to own the project. And then they paid like, I think like several million pounds to Deloitte to like figure this out. Right. And then the whole thing collapsed because people couldn't figure out who should be the ownership of this project. And it's like a notorious failure in the music industry. Like, the GRD. And so it's like, it's just a, it's like a coordination problem. It, and it's a bunch of things that is just difficult to do. But to come back to the original point, it just makes so much sense, like programmatic licensing that should exist. But how we get there, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of things to tackle at once that makes it a very difficult problem. It's so funny that that we were talking about um... We were talking about this kind of programmatic licensing issue and the issue of royalties among all these different countries and stuff. Because I've been dealing with wanting my Song A Day NFT project to um, somehow get royalties back into the hands of the people who own the songs. Mm -hmm. Have there be some kind of like, like they don't own, them owning the copyright would be too difficult. But like, just like Simon was saying, the, this issue. Any way you slice it is like ins incredibly complicated. It's just like too complicated to even mm -hmm. fathom. You mean like uh, distributing royalties from streams kind of thing? Exactly. I had this yeah. whole cockamamie idea where I would, I would take fifty percent of my all my streaming royalties and my YouTube ad revenue, everything I make off of those songs, and I would take fifty percent of it and distribute it to all token holders of Song a Day. Uh, like evenly, everybody who owns one gets fifty gets like a piece of that fifty percent. Um, That's pretty cool. Which is a cool idea, but but like totally illegal as far as the SEC is concerned, and right. like and and you know just a logistical nightmare as it stands now. Man, um, everything I want to do is illegal. <laughs> right. What's up with that? <laughs> um, so <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Simon, the mad scientist. Um, you can find him on Twitter. Uh, he is Simon DLR, uh, on Twitter at Simon DLR. And please do follow him. Like I said, if you want, if you want to know what's going to be happening, he is the guy. Yeah. If you're if you're trying to skate towards the puck but you don't know where it is, Simon's the one right up next to it. Yeah. He's, skating to where it's going. His his uh his hockey stick is leading the way. Just right. follow Simon's hockey stick is, is the <laughs> is is what you should do. Um you can find me on Twitter at Songaday Man. Matt is at Matt G Condon. And uh that's it for us, folks. Uh, please leave us a like and and a and a leave us a little heart and some mm -hmm, reviews. Mm -hmm. And Matt, do you want to? Nope. You got to do no, it. I no, no, I don't. No, I don't. Really? No, you have no. to. I'm gonna be the change I wish to see in the world, and it's... I'm gonna take a stand on this episode. <laughs> you heard it here first. I'm not gonna do the bit. <laughs> 
right, I'll, I'll say it. I'll say it then if I yeah, have to. Yeah. yeah. Then you I'll get to feel it. You get to feel what it's like. Uh, folks, is it stay nifty or get nifty? I, I think it's. I mean, the song, I think it's get nifty. Oh no, uh, I did it. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> 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 oh yeah.